Welcome to the Mindfulness Meditation Podcast presented by the Rubin Museum of Art. We are a museum in Chelsea, New York City that connects visitors to the art and ideas of the Himalayas and serves as a space for reflection and personal transformation. I'm your host, Tashi Chodron. Every Thursday, we present a meditation session inspired by a different artwork from the Rubin Museum's collection and led by a prominent meditation teacher from the New York area. This podcast is a recording of our weekly in-person practice. In the description for each episode, you will find information about the theme for that week's session, including an image of the related artwork. Our Mindfulness Meditation Podcast is presented in partnership with Sharon Salzberg and teachers from the New York Inside Meditation Center, the Interdependence Project, and Parabola Magazine, and supported by the Frederick P. Lenz Foundation for American Buddhism. And now, please enjoy your practice. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Mindfulness Meditation here at the Rubin Museum of Art. My name is Tim McHenry. I'm Deputy Executive Director here at this global hub for Himalayan art with a home base here in New York City. And we're really so glad to have such a full house to join us for this very special occasion when we are to hear from our honored teacher, Atulkur Pema Ringsal Rinpoche. So, uh, as is our weekly tradition here every Thursday, what we'd like to do is um, explore our collection a little and take inspiration from it. And uh, Rinpoche has chosen two objects in our collection for us to have a look at. We'll do that first, and then Rinpoche will uh, join us on stage and guide us in a meditation um, after having done a brief teaching beforehand. And the meditation will take maybe about 15 minutes or so. So, um, so let's take a look at the objects that Rinpoche has chosen for today's session. And they are, of course, the Vajra and the Bell. The theme of this session, indeed, for the whole of February is love and compassion. And the Vajra and the Bell, of course, signify the union of all dualities. The Vajra is held in the right hand and the Bell in the left when one's arms are crossed, it symbolizes that the two forces are united, representing enlightenment. And they are probably the two most important ritual objects in Tibetan Buddhist practice. The Vajra, of course, representing method, and the bell, wisdom. So I'm very, very honored on behalf of the Ruba Museum of introducing Rinpoche to you. Tulka Pema Riksal Rinpoche is the supreme head of the Namka Gyeongdong Monastery in Humla, Nepal. And at the age of three, he was recognized by Dujam Rinpoche as the reincarnation of Chime Rinpoche, uh, who is the emanation of the great Indian sitter, Dhamma Sangye, and spiritual head of the renowned Shepfal Ling Monastery in Tibet. In 1985, he constructed his own uh, monastery in Humla and has taught the 13 major philosophical texts, the Shungchen Chamsung, for 24 years. And he's been uh, an inspiration to so many and so many of you here in this room, and we're so glad that you could join us for this very special session. Rinpoche has studied the Vajrayana tradition of the Nyingma lineage from the renowned spiritual masters, and I can't name them all, but I'll just refer to a few, to Jum Rinpoche, of course, and Dilgo Kense Rinpoche amongst them. Uh, Rinpoche will be joined by his translator, Laura, on stage, and we're very grateful to Laura for facilitating this um, experience and this teaching. But Rinpoche, it's such an honor to have you here at the Rubin Museum of Art. It's been many years since you were last here. And please, 
please join us on the stage. Thank you so much. Okay. Namaste. So the topic, the first topic today is uh, the Vajra and Bell. The Vajra and Bell, which symbolize or express emptiness and compassion. So I will do my best uh, in this short time to just share a, a bit about these symbols. Generally speaking, the Vajra and Bell are implements used in secret mantra practice. If we were to explain the real meaning of Vajra and Bell, uh, we, couldn't even, we couldn't finish even in a few hours. Uh, because there is a very detailed explanation of the Vajra and Bell in a text in one of Jigme Lingpa's compositions. In short, uh, let's look at the bell first. Uh, the bell uh, embodies the enlightened body, speech and mind of all Buddhas. So how is this the case? At the top of the bell, there is a face. That face represents the or rather embodies the enlightened body of all enlightened ones. The sound that the bell makes, the ringing, uh, embodies the speech, or illustrates the speech of all the enlightened beings. And the Vajra handle, uh, that symbolizes enlightened mind. So in this way, the enlightened body speech of all Buddhas is contained in the bell. As for the Vajra, um, the lower five prongs of the Vajra illustrate the five wisdoms, the five primordial wisdoms. Uh, probably no need to mention these to you. These are the uh, Dharmadhatu wisdom, the mirror-like wisdom, the discriminating wisdom, wisdom of equanimity, and the all-accomplishing wisdom. So that those are illustrated by the five upper, the five lower prongs. Sorry, the five upper prongs symbolize the. Um, Five kayas, the five wisdom bodies uh, of Virochana, Vajrasattva, Ratnasambhava, Amitayas, and Amogasiddhi. 
Surrounding both the five upper and lower prongs, the eight lotus petals, these symbolize the male and female eight bodhisattvas. And the central hub or sort of ball in the center of the Vajra symbolizes that all of these are contained within the uh, ultimate single bindu. To explain the meaning of the Vajran bell very briefly, that's it. Sangala the Vajra and Bell are implements of secret mantra, implements of secret mantra practice. Um, they are hand implements, things that are held in the hands of the deities. There are so many different hand implements of the various uh, tantric deities. Some deities hold a curved knife, some are uh, purba, some are skull cup, and so on. Each of the five Buddha families hold specific and different hand implements, and so on and so forth. Um, for instance, the hundred Buddha families each have their respective uh, hand implements. However, all of these hundred and more hand implements of the uh, hundred the hundred Buddha families can be contained uh, in the Vajra and the bell, in these two. Why is that the case? Well, the Buddha Vajrasattva uh, contains or embodies all of the hundred uh, peaceful and wrathful deities, the 52 wrathful and 48 peaceful deities. In that way, Vajrasattva embodies all uh, different Buddha families. And Vajrasattva, what does he hold in his hands? He holds in his right hand a Vajra, in his left hand a bell. Um, so in this way, the Vajra and bell embody all hand implements and all Buddha families. Um, in this way, if one can hold, so to speak, or embody the Vajra and bell, in that way, one can embody or hold the hand implements or insignia of all Buddhas. Nangaran Nettery
Kim Wadaza Rinpoche would uh, often talk about the Vajra and Bell and say, you know, really the Vajra and Bell, they should be treated with uh, uttermost respect and reverence. For instance, uh, they shouldn't just be placed down uh, directly on a table. Rather, they should have their own um, mat, actually, um, uh, like a, a dedicated mat. Um, but rather than um, that being the case, often monks and practitioners, um, they treat the Vajra and Bell very carelessly, almost as if they're just like a product kind of manufactured, you know, like something made out of something made by cut by a carpenter uh, or a craftsman. That is absolutely not the case, he said. Uh, in actual fact, if we understand the meaning of uh, Vajra, for instance, uh, we understand that a Vajra is even more precious, even more sacred than a statue than the representation of Buddha's body. Uh, this being the case, we really need to respect Vajra and Bell. For instance, uh, we can do this by uh, using a special mat, um, placing the Vajra and Bell on that mat, keeping the Vajra Bell in the shrine in a high and clean place. It shouldn't be just like placed on one's lap, placed on a table carelessly, kept in a low place. Certainly they shouldn't be walked over and things like that. Uh, if we study the Tantras, uh, we will find very detailed um, explanations of the profound meaning of the Vajra and Bell. For instance, Vimalamitra gave a detailed explanation of the Vajra and Bell. And if we... Uh, look to those explanations, we'll see uh, just how and why these items are so incredibly blessed and sacred. This being the case, if any of you are practitioners and you possess Vajra and Bell, you should treat them with respect in the way that I've described, that the teachers explain. Um, and those of you who are sort of just uh, interested in learning about the Vajra Bell as like a, a topic of research or something, um, just be aware that seven minutes is certainly not enough to even begin to understand the meaning of these sacred items. Ini Nama Ini
This being the case, uh, if one is a practitioner, and as a practitioner, one is enabled to keep all of the various insignia or hand implements of the deities, but one can um, just keep uh, a Vajra and a bell. All of the deities' insignia or hand implements are contained in the Vajra and bell. So just by possessing a Vajra and bell, you in that way possess the insignia of all deities without exception. Um, this is the case because in the secret mantra tradition, there are four things that are taught to be secret or uh, that are said that should be kept secret by a practitioner. First of all, is the place of one's practice. Secondly, the substances of one's practice. Uh, third, the time. And fourth, the deity. These need to be kept secret. When we talk about substances here, um, Vajra and Bell are examples of secret mantra substances. Um, so they are inc incredibly sacred implements. This being said, the bell does appear in the uh, sutra teachings as well, in the sutra context. Um, it's, in that case, it's called a gandhi, which is the Hindi word for bell. Um, that word gandhi can also refer to the stick that is used in the uh, Vinaya context, but uh, it can also refer to the bell. So the use of bells does appear in sutra level of teachings uh, with various um, significance and in different contexts. Um, at that level of teaching, so the level of the vehicle of characteristics, we can understand that the bell symbolizes emptiness and the Vajra compassion, so emptiness and compassion. But um, as we progress to the level of secret mantra, um, we can understand that the Vajra symbolizes skillful means and the bell symbolizes wisdom. Um, and even higher, the great perfection. Uh, you Westerners love the great perfection, right, Zogchen? So um, in the Great Perfection, we have natural awareness and emptiness, Rigpa and emptiness. So the Vajra symbolizes uh, Rigpa and um, the bell symbolizes emptiness. In this way, uh, at each of the nine vehicles, from the first all the way up to the ninth, we can understand the Vajra and bell to have different types of significance. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ninjisigendeshanda Tilu あ、てねがらんとちゅうだとじれ。てんでたちいってなどじでちゅうだそのだなんでかんはこごれすな。ランキセムクロンラ人間だ。とんいた人間ってセムてなでんてよば。てんあちぎみぎすうにちがらんと
here in this session, we're also, uh, our, our aim is to discuss love and kindness and compassion, right? In connection with the Vajra and Bell. So when we talk about loving kindness and compassion and then compassion and emptiness, we're talking about kind of in, inner states of mind, right? Felt states of mind. Uh, we're not just talking about some solid object like a Vajra, uh, a solid Vajra that exists outside of us. Compassion and emptiness are internal states, so to speak, that we need to develop, that we need to come to realize, first of all, uh, with, by means of a conceptual understanding, uh, then uh, deepened into a uh, degree of personal experience, and then finally direct realization. Um, the Vajra and Bell are illustrations or symbols of compassion and emptiness, this compassion and emptiness that we need to develop. That said, we also need to understand that essentially uh, compassion and emptiness are inherently present already within our own minds. They are intrinsic to the very uh, kind of fiber of our being, the uh, essential nature of our mind. Um, at once, they are the compassion and emptiness are the result that we need to attain. At the same time, they are the path we need to traverse. They're also the basic ground, the basic state of things. Um, compassion and emptiness already exist present within the very essence of our mind. This is an important point we need to understand. Um, we can talk about emptiness and compassion. We can also talk about these same, same things in terms of wisdom and skillful means, or uh, we can call them generation stage or completion stage. The point is we need to understand emptiness and compassion are naturally present within our own minds. They're not something that is uh, like a product that is manufactured or fabricated, kind of built by someone, crafted by someone's hands with effort and intention, and then produced. Rather, they, they're already existent, present within the nature of our own minds. At certain levels of teachings, this um, natural emptiness and compassion is called Buddha nature, Sugata Garbha. In tantric levels of teachings, it's called the all-pervasive Vajra. In short, uh, what we're talking about here is self-arisen Rigpa, uh, naturally present awareness or primordial wisdom, which are illustrated by the Vajra and the bell. In this context, as I've explained, Vajra and bell then have these multiple layers of meaning. Uh, in this context, so we are going to uh, discuss the Vajra and Bell in light of bodhicitta, compassion and emptiness. So at that level, where they symbolize compassion and emptiness. That's Tony 
So compassion and emptiness, you might think, okay, so uh, you're saying we, we are all endowed with Buddha nature, we possess Buddha nature, which is basically emptiness and compassion, those are natural qualities of our mind. You know, you say that, but how can that really be the case? Sure, that makes sense to say that about a Buddha, you know, Buddha's already enlightened, sure, they're in, naturally endowed with compassion and emptiness. But if that were the case for us, why then are we here in, you know, wandering through samsara? If our mind is by its very nature, compassion and emptiness, why are we here? Why are we uh, struggled and why are we struggling and suffering? Well, when we say that we possess Buddha nature, that that is the fiber of our being, what, what we mean is that we possess Buddha nature like a seed. We are, we are endowed with that seed, that potential. 
what we need to do is to make that seed grow, to allow that seed to grow, to actualize it. We use that word actualize or manifest. Um, if, you do, if you have a seed, but you just keep that seed in a box, you don't plant it, it's never going to grow, right? It's never going to fulfill its potential. You need to take the seed out of the box. You need to plant it. You also need to keep it uh, watered, make sure it has enough sunlight, provide it with the proper conditions for growth, and then it can grow into, uh, you know, into whatever its potential is. So our Buddha nature is just like that. It exists within all of us in the form of a seed, a basic potential. Um, and that potential, if allowed to manifest, then, yeah, then it can manifest. So this is why it's taught that uh, all beings are in uh, emptiness and compassion are present intrinsically in the nature of all beings' minds. In this way, all beings have Buddha nature. But at the same time as sort of being taught that, you'll also hear teachers saying, uh, you, all, you need to train on the path, you need to uh, you know, exert effort, you need to do purification, gather merit, and so on and so forth. That's all to say that um, we, uh, yeah, we have Buddha nature in the form of a seed, but if we don't exert ourselves, if we don't apply the effort, which is like gathering the conditions, planting the seed, water, sunlight, and so on, that seed of Buddha nature isn't going to be able to grow. Our Buddha nature isn't going to be able to manifest. So if though we bring these two things together, this natural asset of Buddha nature, as well as the effort, meaning training on the path, then our Buddha nature can uh, expand, it can flourish and display its potential, so to speak. We can describe Buddha nature uh, in terms of three qualities, uh, and we can also actually condense all of uh, Buddha's enlightened qualities into these same three, wisdom, love, and power. There is an intrinsic degree of wisdom, love, and power in all of us and in all sentient beings, no matter who we are, no matter what type of being, no matter, no matter our gender, our class, our status, our situation. Um, so this intrinsic intelligence, love, and power or ability uh, is present in all of us. What we need to do is to uh, build on that, to expand and perfect that natural inherent potential. Many of you here are probably seasoned Dharma students, and you've heard about all of this uh, uh, many times. There might be some here, though, who are completely new. Maybe this is the first time you've heard about these things. Even though for, for those of you who are totally new, who've never been exposed to Buddhist teachings before, you too, uh, just like everyone else, are endowed with, this, uh, with these intrinsic qualities. Uh, for instance, if you have children, you will feel a natural love for your children, a natural love for your friends and, and close ones, right? Um, we see this also in animals, in dogs, in birds, in all types of animals. This kind of intrinsic love uh, is a sign of Buddha nature, like the uh, sign or glow of Buddha nature. We see the potential of human beings and the things that we've been able to invent and create, like rockets that can fly to the moon. Uh, that's also a sign of Buddha nature, actually. The potential of mind. We see also these qualities in animals. For instance, some birds who uh, are able to see sort of tens of thousands of uh, miles away, or um, some can smell uh, extremely accurately over very vast distances. Some have that kind of power with their hearing and so on. So these extraordinary qualities uh, that are unique to each type of being are signs of Buddha nature, signs of Buddha nature shining through. Same goes with love, there's intrinsic love, like we mentioned, and also a sense of capacity or power. Like elephants, um, it said they can sense, uh, detect water with their trunks. Some uh, sea animals have extremely powerful tails that they can do extraordinary things with. Um, in terms of humans, we have the ability to look after those we care for and to uh, fend off enemies, right? That's also a type of ability. Um, to the extent that uh, also in recent times we've built uh, nuclear weapons and, and so on. Uh, planes, the ability to drill through the ground and so on. All of this uh, is a sign of Buddha nature shining through, this, this basic ability, right? This basic ability. 
Um, you might think when I say this, oh, Rimshi doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, these technolo technological advancements, they're made by machines, not by humans. But those machines that are doing the work are made by humans, right? And the ability of humans to make those machines, to invent those things, is a display or evidence or function of Buddha nature, of these intrinsic qualities of the mind. Um, so these intrinsic qualities, to sum up, are uh, knowledge, love, and power these three qualities, um, how, depending on how developed these qualities are within each individual, um, yeah, how developed, how expanded, um, then we see in individuals, uh, we see differences in individuals, um, how sort of positive and wholesome someone's conduct is, how developed they are as a person, um, to the extent of, you know, all the different types of sentient beings in samsara to the enlightened Buddhas and bodhisattvas. Oh, yeah. That's the you cannot... Now, the ニンチケ因此,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你看,你
Compassion and emptiness are naturally present in all beings. By virtue of knowing this, we can generate loving kindness, uh, compassion, and bodhicitta towards ourselves and all beings, all beings without exception. In treatises like The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva and Atisha's Lamp of Enlightenment, uh, it's taught that one should cultivate loving kindness and compassion by uh, acknowledging that all, mother sen all sentient beings in past lives have been one's mother. For instance, in Atisha's uh, Lamp of Enlightenment, he teaches seven progressive stages for developing the mind of enlightenment. And the first of these is to acknowledge that all sentient beings, no matter what state they might be in now, whether they be hungry ghosts or hell beings or animals or what have you, at some point in the past, they have been your mother. In one of your previous rebirths, and at that time, they nurtured you with great love and kindness. Um, so, acknowledging that connection and acknowledging that kindness is the first step. Based on that understanding, one can then come to think that, okay, now I've obtained this precious human body, this extraordinarily fortunate situation. I've met with the Dharma. I have the chance to pursue the path to enlightenment. But considering the kindness that all sentient beings have shown me in the past, it would be indecent to just pursue enlightenment for myself. So therefore, I will pursue enlightenment for the sake of all beings, not just myself. Yeah, and at the same time, we can uh, uh, to feel compassion for all sentient beings, understanding that all sentient beings share the same fundamental wish for happiness and freedom from suffering, but through their ignorance, they don't know how to pursue that wish. Instead, they actually cultivate causes for suffering and obstruct their own causes, their own potential for happiness. Uh, so with that, we further engender compassion. In this way, we cultivate compassion, we increase our compassion. Uh, equally, we uh, do experience like a natural compassion already. For instance, if you see your mother in pain, naturally, like a, a sense of compassion and care will well up inside you, right? So just naturally there without having to cultivate it. You'll think, immediately think, what can I do to help my mother? Can I take her to the doctor? What kind of medicine can I get her? So there's this natural loving kindness and compassion already. Once we establish and cultivate a stable foundation of loving kindness and compassion, then with that basis, we can then cultivate bodhicitta, the, the wish to attain enlightenment for all other sentient beings. It's for this reason that loving kindness and compassion are so incredibly important and such precious qualities. Um, that said, um, there are two different types of compassion we can talk about. First of all is a compassion that is infused with an understanding of emptiness. It's this compassion that is pure and genuine. Um, this, there's a, another type of compassion which is void of an understanding of emptiness. Compassion that is uh, centered in self-interest, so to speak, uh, a very uh, biased and conditioned compassion. Um, that is not going to be genuine and pure. It's not going to be boundless. And the kind of compassion we're aiming for is an uncon unconditional, unlimited, unbiased compassion. Um, and that only comes when compassion is infused with an understanding of emptiness.
infused or embraced with emptiness. Um, otherwise, yeah, just compassion on its own, uh, void of under emptiness, um, cannot possibly be genuine, genuine in the sense of boundless um, and beyond self-interest. Um, if compassion is united or conjoined with emptiness, it can become a, uh, unconditional, unlimited, as vast as space, vast and unimpeded as space. It's for this reason that we talk about emptiness and compassion together, uh, that we need emptiness and compassion to go hand in hand, not separate from one another. At the same time, if we just uh, have an understanding of emptiness, but not com no compassion, uh, that is also not the genuine uh, approach. Uh, with emptiness void of compassion, we'll fall into nihilism. The unity of emptiness and compassion uh, is indispensable. There are quotations in the scriptures by masters like the Mahasiddha Saraha uh, that um, speak to this point. Yeah, again and again. Without, for instance, Saraha says, with uh, emptiness without compassion will not bring one to enlightenment. Compassion without emptiness will not bring one to enlightenment. Therefore, emptiness and compassion must be, uh, yeah, must be a, a unity. Um, so this is the path that we need to, this is the way we need to traverse the path, the unity of emptiness and compassion. And this is also the result, a natural unity of emptiness and compassion. Without these two qualities uh, being cultivated together, enlightenment is simply not possible. With this, we've now covered the first uh, of supposedly several topics we're going to discuss, uh, which is the discussing the Vajra and Bell in connection with loving kindness and compassion. So now with the little bit of time we've got left, we will talk about meditation. So meditation means dhyan in, in Sanskrit, which means a one-pointed mind. So how can uh, how should we um, cultivate or or get a one pointed state of mind through <laughs> samadhi? Uh, by means of uh, freedom from thoughts. So, uh, what do we mean by freedom from thoughts and how to go about that? I explained this in some degree of detail when teaching at Tibet House recently. I explained that one uh, abandons five uh, floors by means of eight remedial factors and in that way develops nine stages of resting the mind. Um, no time to go through these here, but those of you who are interested can listen to the recording. So when we say um, resting in a one-pointed state of mind, what we mean in this context is a one-pointed state of emptiness and compassion. These days, uh, it seems everyone thinks meditation is just like one lump thing, or like the meditation of the Maham of uh, Madhyamaka, of Mahamudra, of Great Perfection. It's all the same thing. It's just meditation. Um, this is wrong. Uh, Non-Buddhists uh, uh, also have meditation, um, but the types, the, their types of meditation are very different from Buddhist meditation. Yeah, 
Um, so we need to um, cultivate a, a, we could say a, st a still state of mind, or uh, yeah, a still state of mind. But what do we mean by that? Well, in this case, we're talking about cultivating a, a state of bodhicitta, meaning compassion and emptiness. In the Buddhist tradition, this is called the samadhi that uh, ascertains the nature of things, resting in one-pointed absorption in emptiness and compassion. Even just resting the mind in a sort of ordinary, so to speak, state of stillness actually uh, has enormous qualities or enormous potential. Um, just by uh, letting the mind remain still can develop the mind's natural qualities. It can blossom into certain types of clairvoyance, supernatural powers, also bring about a lot of happiness. Um, but uh, those qualities alone will not lead to liberation. So uh, the point then being that what we need to meditate on, what we need to kind of rest our mind in is emptiness and compassion. Through that, we can attain enlightenment. Through resting in emptiness and compassion, we can reach enlightenment. If we rest in the state of Mahamudra, then we can attain that state of enlightenment much, much faster. If we rest in the, uh, can rest the mind in the view of the great perfection, we can manifest enlightenment in a single life and single body. So these are the differences, right, between uh, many different types of meditation. These days, it seems people think meditation is simply, you know, sitting in a certain posture and being still. Um, ringing a singing bowl and listening to the sound peacefully. That is not uh, necessarily meditation, and certainly... Um, meditation is not limited just to that. There's a sutra, a sutra Buddha taught called the King of Samadhi Sutras. Uh, it goes through many hundreds of different types of samadhi, different types of meditation. So uh, I won't say any more about this now. We simply don't have time. Um, yeah, we've already run over time. Um, those of you who are interested can listen to the recordings of various teachings I've given that where I discuss these very points uh, in much more detail. So you can listen to those. They're on YouTube and things. Um, we'll stop now. Thank you, Laura, so much for uh, translating all this while. Rache, thank you so much for filling the time so richly with these teaching, reminding of us of our intrinsic Buddha nature. Good, okay. Okay, thank you okay, all for joining. Thank you, thank thank you, you so much. Thank you. That concludes this week's practice. To support the Rubin and this meditation series, we invite you to become a member at rubinmuseum.org slash membership. And to stay up to date with the Rubin Museum's virtual and in-person offerings, sign up for our monthly newsletter at rubinmuseum.org slash enews. I am Tashi Chodron. Thank you so much for listening. Have a mindful day.